the Pardis Institute of Jewish Studies, this is Pardis from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, a Pardis alum. This week, Bereshit. This week, please take a moment and send us an email about your listening experiences with the podcast. Please let us know where you listen to the podcast, if you listen to it with uh, any other people, and any other information you'd like to include. Email us via info at pardes.org.il. Thanks very much. This week, Bereshit with Rabbi Mike Foyer. Rabbi Mike Foyer is a member of the Pardes faculty. And now, Rabbi Mike Foyer. So I'm betting that somebody out there listening is a grade school teacher. How many of you raise your hands or let me know, are you a grade school teacher? And even if you're not a teacher, probably many of us have grade school children. And barring either of those, it's an absolute certainty at one point or another, you were 10 or 11. So you may have gotten the homework assignment at the end of a summer saying, tell me about your summer. How was it? What did you do? And if you're a teacher or a parent, then you know if you got an essay back that says my summer was good. I did a lot of good things. We went to good places. I had a good time. You're going to hand that paper right back and say to your student or your child, or you heard from someone else, tell me something that means something. And if that's the case, then what exactly are we to make of the first chapter of Genesis? After all, by the fourth line, it already pops up. God saw that the light was good. And from here on out, there's going to be a whopping seven times that we'll hear the word tov. And the only nuance thrown in is that strange phrase of very good that closes out the chapter. So apparently, it's all good. But we have no way of knowing what that means. So before we try to delve a little bit into the meaning of tov, which is really our goal today, let's just get something straight. What it doesn't mean at this point is the opposite of bad. Ra, evil, bad, won't make an appearance in our story until the second chapter. And even there, only as an idea, in conception, really, not as an existent phenomenon. It says in Breshit 2.9, right? right? The Lord God caused to grow from the ground every tree. It was pleasing to the sight, good for food. And there was that tree in the middle, right? The tree of life in the middle of the garden. The Eitz Hadat Tov Vara. And the tree of knowledge of good and bad. Meaning, the word appears, but the phenomenon doesn't seem to exist yet. There's just the capacity to come to know it through the tree. We're going to have to actually wait for the lead up to the flood for anything to be labeled as bad. And we'll get to that in a few moments. But for now... I feel confident in saying that whatever tov may mean, it's not simply the opposite of ra, at least not at the beginning. So what does it mean then? Well, if we look around in our classic literature, we'll find that the Ramban, Nachmanides, you always got to emphasize that, says the following. Right? This is the whole matter, that the word indicates that God desires the existence of whatever is labeled as good. And furthermore, that if that desire were to separate from the thing for a moment, it would be as if it never existed. He goes on, you can read the text there in the source sheet, but essentially, good in the eyes of the Rambam is that God's desire that something exists. And perhaps labeling it good, he says, is that it exists forever. Now let's add to this the Sforno, right? a later thinker, but yet still in our Rishonim category, the early medieval authorities, he says, right, God saw that light was good, 
right? It, this is the case because God saw the light and chose its existence, right? Right? He chose that it exists because of its purpose, its tachlit, which is the good for which God brought it forth in the first place through this wonderful phrase of his, Yidiato ha-po'elet. We're not going to get into medieval philosophy and the idea of the active intellect or perhaps creative consciousness, as I like to translate it there. But bottom line, both the Swarno and the Ramban say that what t- good means is that the existence of something is reflective of the will of its maker. The Ramban leans toward the very essence of existence being existence, meaning it's good because it exists and God wants it to exist. The Sforno seems to have some sort of teleology. Things are made for a purpose, and that's what makes them good. That's actually a worthwhile discussion to delve into, but not for right now, because I feel like we could stay with this as an opening definition, that the word tov, good, means that which is reflective of the will of its maker. God looks at each piece of creation and says, yes, this is what I intended. Now, there's a lot of ways we can go with that. And everyone, I hope, out there has had the creative experience of human beings. You know, and one could argue that the very Tzedem Elohim, the very image of God in which we were created, means that we too are creators, just explain that for a second. When it says that Adam was created in the image of God, the only image of God we've been presented with at this point in the story is as creator. So therefore, it's reasonable to think that the very divine within us is our ability to create. But of course, there's a fundamental difference between that ability and God's ability. To God, whatever God creates is good because it's perfectly reflective of the will of its maker. But I'm willing to bet If you have any creative experience at all, be it in plastic medium, song, poetry, or just simply trying to express something that's in your heart in words, then you know there's often a gap between conception and execution. Not everything I do is perfectly reflective of my will, and therefore, we live in a world in which is good enough on some level, and not that perfect good. But be that as it may, my main point is that if we say tov in the first story of creation, means that whatever is labeled as such is reflected of the will of its maker, it opens up an even larger discussion for us about a difference between what I like to think of as the moral meaning and the essential meaning of key terms in the biblical narrative. I'll sort of take a sidestep from our main topic just to demonstrate the word chet. The word chet is usually defined as sin, and rightfully so. But if you've ever watched or listened to a basketball game in modern Hebrew, you've probably noticed there's a lot of sinning going on. Shoot and huichti, huichti. Right? That's what they say when you miss the shot. Because really, in biblical language, hate means to miss the mark. So how does it come to mean sin? Well, it's very simple. Moral language is always reflective of some standard of measure, some system of value, which gives meaning to the word. So if you miss the mark... In a world where things are good or bad, where you do God's will or do not, so we call that sin. You miss the mark when you're shooting basics. We just call it, we, we just call it missing the mark. We might also, however, call it a bad shot, or if you hit, we would call it good. All right? Calling it a good shot doesn't mean it was a moral act. It means that it was exactly what you intended. So like I said, there's a much bigger discussion. You can feel free to disagree with the idea that there's a moral meaning and an essential meaning of key terms in biblical narrative. You're going to have to take it up in one of two ways with me. You can show up in my class, first semester, this is our major topic, or you can write me an email here at Pardes, mikef at pardes.org. 
dot dot org dot il. I'm always happy to hear from folks. Either way, I'm going to take as my working definition of good the idea that Tove is that which is reflective of the will of its maker, at least in the first chapter. Because as you probably know, going forward, things get bad pretty quickly. So if you haven't read it, spoiler alert, the Tree of Knowledge of Good and Evil proves too strong a temptation for for Adam and Chava. Then there's that whole passion-power struggle between she and the snake and Adam. If you haven't read it, really, it's worthwhile. The next thing you know, we all get the boot from the garden, set up camp east of Eden, and try to figure out what exactly just happened and how it went wrong. I mean, that's how the story goes, isn't it? Or at the very least, it's a tempting way to tell this story. And you've probably heard it told this way at least once before. Once upon a time, everything was good. Edenic, even. Until we succumbed to temptation, ate the forbidden fruit, and were driven from the garden. And now they're bad. Bad, 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 even in the essential sense. Because when we look around at the world, and you may have had this feeling, I don't know, whenever you read the news, it doesn't seem that the world is going the way God wanted to. Is this how the story is going to play out? And you could follow that line of thinking. You could tell that story all the way to the end of our Parsha, where not surprisingly, in the sixth chapter of Breshit, in the fifth line, something is finally actually labeled as Ra. I want to be clear, up until now, we had this tree, which opened up the knowledge of good and evil, but we haven't been able to point at anything in the world and say, that's Ra, that's bad, until... God looks down and says the following, The Lord saw how great was man's evil or wickedness on earth. Right? That, and every thought of his heart was only bad all day long. So it's actually the thoughts of the heart of man that are labeled evil as a first act in creation. That's pretty bad. I mean, this is, after all, the trigger for the flood. The first time anything is called raw, but clearly as a summation, looking backward, of a series of actions which seem to begin with Adam eating from the fruit. This is the punchline for a story of failed creation, and you may have heard it told before. All you had to do was not eat the fruit, Adam. Everything would be good. Couldn't hold out. And now, look what it's come to. Total destruction, and we're stuck in a fallen world. Except the reality is, when you look more closely at the story, there's a whole nother narrative to be told. And a lot of it hinges around the meaning of Tov. Because if Tov is a moral meaning, then Ra, then bad, is its opposite perforce And both have to exist in order for one to gain its true definition. But let's try it like this. Did it ever strike you that this whole don't eat the fruit from the tree thing is more than a little bit like a setup? I mean, just picture it. God creates this garden. Four rivers come out from Eden. It's beautiful. Everything you can imagine he puts in there. And he says, Adam, you can eat it all. Not only that, but there's an easy way to read. To read God's command is actually that Adam should eat. I mean, after all, look at Genesis 2.16. And Lord God commanded the man, saying, From every tree of the garden, my translation here says, you are free to eat. But one could read this as the commandment. Eat, eat Adam. That's how you're going to make it in the world. But then it says, But, as for the tree of knowledge and good and bad, 
no, 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 not that one, because you're going to die. Like I said, it's always struck me as a little bit of a setup, the tempty, shining fruit in the middle. Well, what if I told you that God actually had to entice Adam to enter the garden in the first place? It was somewhat of an act of seduction, and Rashi actually brings the Midrash on the line right before the one we read, on Ambreshi 2.15, that says, V'kach Hashem Elohim et Adam. Right? The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to till and to tend it. And the problem in the Pasuk, in the eyes of our sages, is how do you actually take a person? Now, you can put a person, God forbid, in a cage and transport, the, transport them from one place to another. But taking a person really is a matter of co-opting their will. And thus, Rashi brings the Midrash that says, right? He took him with pleasant words, and enticed him. He seduced Adam into the garden. Now, why would that be? On some level, God wanted Adam to want to be there. What's happening here? It's a strange notion in and of itself. I mean, Adam has to be enticed, and his his descendants for the rest of history are going to struggle to get back there on our own. But maybe Adam sensed the setup. I mean, apparently, outside the garden, everything was good. It was only that tree in the middle which could possibly introduce him into a world of knowing Ra. And it's surely not an accident that the same will which God wanted to preserve within Adam's entry into the garden, I mean, after all, God could have picked him up, however you understand such things, and put him there. But instead, God wanted to trigger Adam's desire to be there. And this is, after all, a story of desire. So maybe he sensed the setup. Maybe God wanted somehow to preserve Adam's agency. But no matter what, you know how it goes. He reaches out his hand, he and Chava, and they take from the fruit. Which is bad? Well, that depends on how you tell the story, because obviously there's more than one way to do it. But I'll leave you with this. We're compacting quite a bit into one podcast, but feel free to write me your questions or your reflections. I'm always here, happy to hear what you think. Because when we look back at that only nuance in chapter one, right, when your nine-year-old daughter said, oh, this was very good. And you said, okay, almost, but what does good mean? At that tov ma'od, we find a very strange rabbinic insight. Truth is, if you look up in Breshit Rabbah, you'll find a series of very strange rabbinic insights. But this one both strikes my fancy and serves my purpose right now. It says, Rabbi Nachman bar Yishmuel bar Nachman, B'Shem Rav Shmuel bar Nachman Amar. That's fun. Hine tov ma'od. What is tov ma'od? Right? It was good refers to the good desire. It was very good refers to the evil desire. Right? What? That's very strange. How then, as the Midrash asks, could the evil desire be good? That would be extraordinary. And the Midrash goes on to point out, but without the Yetzer without this evil desire... No one would ever build a house, get married, have children. And that's why Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon says, right? Ki hi, excuse me, ki hi kinat ish mire'ehu, right? That, again, I consider all labor and all excelling in work that is a man's rivalry with his neighbor. That very act of desire, which sometimes has a negative root, keeping up with the Joneses, a little bit of envy, nevertheless drives a person to create, to thrive, to grow. 
So the sages say that that act of nuance, and there's more to be said on it, is that Tov Ma'od is actually the Yetzahara. Elsewhere, by the way, they actually say it's the appearance of death itself. So how can this help us to understand another way of telling the story? Well, perhaps Tov, as opposed to Tov Vera, good and evil, but Tov in the sense that the world is reflective of the will of its maker, requires that there be another will. Perhaps God's will was such that Adam would eat from the fruit, or at the very least somehow gain the knowledge of good and evil, but that it was something that God couldn't give to Adam. You know, there are things in life, as every parent, every teacher, and every learner knows, there are things in life that no one can give us. We have to take them for ourselves. And perhaps the most critical thing that a person has to take for themselves is agency, is the ability to express their own will, through which you can actually have real relationship. And so I'll end with this thought. If the word tov means reflective of the will of its maker, and as the sages hint at in the Midrash, that the tov ma'od was the very introduction of the Sahara, the very desire which leads Adam to reach out and take that fruit and take a good look, or sorry, leads Chava, in my eyes, they are one being, right? Take a good look at the verse there. It's tov the mareh. It's a good looking tree, right? Nehmad lahaskil. Ooh, we really want it. There's a lot of desire wrapped up in that action. But if that very desire is actually the tov ma'od, the very good, which in one reading seems to lead Adam to disobey and the exile from the garden into the fallen world, right down to the destruction where it's the machshavot libo, his very thoughts of his heart, which are the only, or at least the first thing, labeled as bad. The other way to read it is that was what God wanted all along. Now, why would God want a world? in which Adam would use his will to do Ra instead of Tov? Well, perhaps because there's actually something which lies between Ra and Tov. You know, back there, in the 18th line of the second chapter, we get a very interesting hint. It says, It's not good for man to be alone. Now, not only is this something, the first thing, in fact, which is labeled as not good, which ought to make us sit up and wonder. I think it's the most important indicator we have of what the reason for creation could possibly be. You know, it's the $64,000 question. Why? We can talk a lot about the mechanism of creation. We can talk a lot about the, no- the stories and the, the morals and the lessons that we learn from the sort of fact that creation comes to be and how we tell the narrative. But why? Why would God go to such trouble seems it, since it seems to go bad so quickly? And I think the answer is right there. Follow the logic. We don't know what God wants, but we know that Adam is created in the image of God. And we know that for the being created in the image of God, Lotov, the thing which is not the will, is to be alone. And therefore, one could say that the reason that God creates the world is in order to not be alone. And if you've ever been together with someone else, then you know often it's the ra, it's the bad times, the struggles, the conflicts that deepen a sense of togetherness, which isn't really available when things are just all good. And this is the secret of the fact, and I'll leave you with this, is that if you write out the word ra in Hebrew, resh ayin, and you show it to someone and ask, what does this word mean? Well, it could be one of two things, because it, it can be pronounced ra, as in bad, but it can also be pronounced as rea. Rea is a friend, is your fellow traveler. And so these are basically the two stories of creation which we could tell that if 
Tov is always a failure. It's a doing which God does not want to do. Well, then it leads to the story of the flood. And we know that uh, man's wickedness on earth is definitely very great. And people have some bad thoughts in their hearts all day long. At the same time, the very desire, the very freedom that allows us to do something which appears to be other than that, which is the will of its maker, is what allows us to enter into real relationship and become re'im, re'im a'uvim, real beloved companions, not only to one another, but with God and creation. And that's my blessing to us all on this Parsha Breshit, that we should all be good to each other and re'im and not ra. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Rabbi Foyer. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardes from Jerusalem.